Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast, where we feature the stories of activists, lawyers, and storytellers on the front lines fighting for justice and liberation. If you want to know more about the Center for Constitutional Rights and our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, Frontlines of Justice, and we'll keep you up to date on important developments and exciting events near you or online. You can also make a donation to help us keep doing the vital work of supporting our partners, movements, and communities. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Activist Files and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And now, here's The Activist Files podcast. Hello and welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. My name is Africa Oz, an administrative associate for the legal department at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and I'm here today with Dejan Watts. Hi, everybody. Thank you for having me. My name is Dejan. Thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of this space. Thank you, and we're excited to have you. And today we're here to talk about the impact that incarceration has on caregiving, mothering, family, how reentry services plays a role, and how some of the work you do today and your story all come together to shape your experiences and how you give back to the community in terms of reentry, incarceration, and mothering. Your story is super amazing and very inspirational. We're both formerly incarcerated and some of the things that you shared resonated with me, even though I think we've both been home for almost a decade now and arrested at different points in our lives. And I think like it's crazy that when you talk with someone else who's formerly incarcerated, how much, no matter how long ago it was, like, you just kind of relate and get back in that space. And you're like, yep, yep, that's exactly what happened. So to get started, can you share about your experience being incarcerated and how that affected you as a mother and while you were pregnant, what that experience was like? Of course. So my experience being incarcerated was a very... Well, I want to say unique, but it actually happens more often than we think. I was pregnant while I was incarcerated, and I also had a young son at home when I was incarcerated. And obviously, just being incarcerated in general outside of being pregnant is not the ideal place to be. Being in there while pregnant, it was just a very lonely, chaotic, hectic place, extremely stressful. I got medical attention, but it was the bare minimum. And even during that medical attention, it's just you're always reminded of, you know, that you're an inmate. Don't ask for too much. Don't assume that you will have too much. I mean, we had I had as a pregnant woman, certain some people call them favor. You know, like if the yard went down, I didn't have to sit down every five minutes, every time it went down. If I got dehydrated, I actually got to have cold water stuff like that. And, but I think that that was more just because I was a liability. If my baby had died while I've been in there, I've been a, a law student, some other things going on. But it was extremely stressful to be in there pregnant and to be alone and away from my family and just to be treated like a number because that's what I was. The food was not healthy. There was no special diet for me just because I was pregnant. Yeah. And then, of course, trying to mother, you know, through a phone, and encourage my son and speak to him about grades and speak to him about, you know, all the things that you know, us mothers have to do through a, through a conversation, a, a 15 minute conversation was, uh, was extremely hard. So we spoke a bit before and you mentioned visits and um, 
you know, being able to see your family. Can you share more about the, you know, visiting while you were locked up and your family being able to visit, your son being able to visit and what that was like? Yeah. So for me, that process was terrible. In about 2008, 2009, I was speeding with my son in the car. He was never harmed or taken or anything like that. But because I was young and because when it comes to the criminal justice system, whatever they want to throw on you, if you know, they throw on you, they had charged me with child endangerment. And so when I went to prison, when it was time for him to visit me, they had the authority to allow me to physically visit him, hug him, you know, see him, eat some candy with him. Um, instead, they decided that they were not going to do that. And I was the only person that they had behind the glass with my child and my mother and I. It was a horrible experience. My baby was crying. He didn't understand why he couldn't hug me. He didn't understand, you know, what was going on. The visiting room was right next door so he could see other parents and them hugging their moms and you know he just didn't understand what was going on and that was just really the breaking point for me and that's when I decided that there was a change that was going to be made within me first and foremost and when I got out that I was not going back. And can you describe like what that change was and some of the action steps and decisions you made in terms of like deciding not to go back like what did that look like at that time? There were so many different things that happened during that time. I think that, you know, I really dived into because there, if you're not focused on something, you know, you you better be focused on something. You're going to get caught up in all the stuff that's going on there. You know, it might be the drugs. It might be the gangs. It might be the relationships, whatever it looks like. And so I decided that I was going to really focus on my healing. And and to me, what, what I identified as healing was, you know, God, like, I, I felt alone. I felt by myself. And so I just started praying. I started getting in my word. And the more that I started doing that, I started to see things just a little bit differently. And I remember walking out on the yard one day and I heard this voice as clear as day. And he said, you know, either you're going to learn from these examples or you're going to be one. And what, what I've seen as examples is there was a lot of older women. And I'm talking about these older women only made one decision, one bad one. I had made many. And they made a decision that had got them life in prison. And I mean, some of them were on walkers. Some of them were, you know, obviously very community-based as far as like the prison went and the mentoring other women. And so I encountered a lot of great, influential, impactful women in there who would speak into me and just let me know, this is not the place you need to be. This is not the place you want to be. You have kids. And they just really activated in me this understanding that you know, in my fight to fight my own trauma, I was bringing trauma to myself. It was like a self-sabotaging thing that was going on within myself and the decisions that I was making. And because I did have absent parents and and, and uh, had been through a lot of stuff as a child, I didn't realize that I was also setting my children up for the same thing. And so with a number of things, just the mentorship that I got while I was in there, the situation that happened with the visiting, and then also just those phone calls of my baby being sad, him wanting to see me, him not understanding, and then being pregnant and in that space at the same time, all of those things really caused me to say, that's, you know, this is it. I'm not sure what it's going to take, but I'm going to figure it out when I get home. And when I got home, that's exactly what I did. I, I pressed into places that I wouldn't normally go. I befriended people I wouldn't normally befriend, not because I didn't think that they would be valuable, but that's just not what I grew up in. You know, um, I grew up in the hood. I grew up in poverty. I grew up understanding certain aspects of life. And so I really had to cross the bridge for my healing. Thank you for sharing. If we could backtrack a bit, can you remind us how long you were incarcerated for? 
I was incarcerated for, well, that time, because I had been incarcerated quite a few times before that. Um, Mm -hmm. I did one term in prison, but I did, I went to jail about six or seven times in different counties. And so that time I was incarcerated for a year. Did you give birth while you were incarcerated or were you able to come home after, like right before? No, you were, you actually gave birth while you were in jail. Yeah, so there's a there's quite a few programs that you can apply to while you're in there. And if you have so many years to the gate, and if you have children, and if, you know, they feel like you're not a high risk, they'll allow you to go to these transitional housing. Now, you're still an inmate, um, but the difference with these transitional housings is that when you have your baby, he gets to come back with you, or she gets to come back with you to this place, compared to if you're in prison, if you have your baby there, your family has a certain amount of time to come get that baby. And if they don't get there in time, then the baby goes into the system, which would have been awful for my situation, especially because I was stationed in LA. My mom was all the way in Fresno. So if she had not got, we had no idea when he was going to come, if she had not been able to get there in time or he could have ended up, you know, in the system. And from my understanding as well, from the conversations that they were preparing me for, if I had not gotten into that program, which I did get into the program, they don't even really allow you to bond with the baby because there's no point compared to the program. You're there with the baby the whole time. And there's that bonding time as well. And how far is the distance between Fresno and LA? It's about a four hour drive. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you apply to the program for transitional housing, so when you actually gave birth, were you, were you in cuffs or were you able to give birth freely? Because there's, you know, a lot of people read those stories too. And that does happen. But I was wondering if in this program, was that the case? Where, like, were you able to have a more or less normal birth experience? It was normal in the sense of I was not handcuffed to the bed, but I did have, so you had to go in pairs. So there was always somebody with you, always somebody watching you. There was a situation when I was in, so my baby, when he was born, there was a, there's RSVP going around. There's, um, it's, it's like a respiratory infection. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah, so he ended up getting that. So when he first was born about two weeks later, he got that, which means he had to be hospitalized for another week and a half or so. Um, very scary. Cause you can't do anything and you're, you know, they just have them on this machine. I wanted to stay the night with them. They allowed me to stay the first night, the second night. The main lady basically told me, you know, I don't know if you understand this, but you're an inmate. And she mm-hmm. just basically went in to remind me of who I was and that I was not going to be able to stay with my baby and that I needed to come back. If it had not been for me going back there and advocating for myself and reminding her, I don't need you to tell me that I'm an inmate. Every day that I wake up and my other son is not with me, I'm, I'm reminded that I am here. Every day I wake up and I'm not with my mm-hmm. family and I can't go where I go. And, you know, and I was just very upset because I'm like, I understand what you're saying but my baby is on his you know life or death right now if those lungs do not you know do what they need to do and I'm not beside him and I just really had to advocate for myself and when I did then they allowed me to stay with him for the remainder of the time but those programs it was a mother and infant program they they're way different than what prison would look like we were able to like shop and you know Mm -hmm. stuff like that we have a similar thing in New York I don't know if they've changed the time but the they would allow you to keep your baby up to a year, no matter how much you have um, on your sentence. I don't know if you still have to apply or what the logistics are of that, but there was, so when I was in on Rikers Island, when I was locked up, the youth wing was right next to the like pregnancy wing, like all of the 
liability group. <laughs> we're all next to each other. So we were able to see like, like some of the differences and nuances, like they, you know, they did get, if they would get more food, like it's not like the food was really different, but they would get more food. They were able to like go into the doctors. Like there was a different type of treatment, but not in a sense of, oh, we care. It was like, we don't want to get sued, which is right. a totally different the intention behind the action, you, you can, you notice it. And it's interesting because there was a girl, she was 16 and she was locked up. She was in our wing. She found out that she was pregnant. Um, Cause you know, they, they, they drug test you. They do a pregnancy test when you come into jail. She found out that she was pregnant. You know, I remember her talking about it and she was like, well, like, I, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Like, and then she she had like some beef with some girls there and then she basically told the CEO like, Oh, I'm pregnant and I'm gonna keep it. So she wound up moving to the pregnancy wing and we would see her sometimes at the school and she was just like honestly, she she was like, It was I wanted to have my baby, but at the same time I just feel like if I was staying in the that wing, like something was gonna happen to me and I just feel like I would have been safer, I would have been more protected. So just even her mindset of survival in jail was like that was deep. Like I could not imagine being 16 having to make a, that's a very complex decision that you have to make because it's not like it would be easier for her after she had the baby, but just thinking in terms of like, how do I survive in jail for the next three years? It was like having a baby right now is going to prevent these people from jumping me or whatever it was. I watched this show. I think it came on TLC and it was all about women that it was like a, a prison or like a wing where they all had their kids and some of the rules were like if your baby has to go to the hospital and if like some if they have like jaundice or RSV or anything like that if they go sometimes that that prison can use that as a ground to not bring them back and say like it's neglect or it's either just like it's too much work for the prison to to like keep going to the hospital with your baby and that was I mean, like, that was crazy. Like, just, they, they were basically like, if your child is unhealthy, you know, that, that's a, a, a fault on you. And you not only you get a new charge and you lose your child, but some of these things you learn when you become a mother, some things are out of your control, you know? So I just think about that. Like, even within the prison system, like, even if you're in a program or something, and you have a baby, you're still, your motherhood is still on trial. Like, you're still like you trying to stay with your son overnight, being a good, you know, and what society would think is a good mom, the the head of the program is like, well, look, you're an inmate, you can't do that. But then if you didn't go stay, or if you didn't care, it would also be like, oh, she doesn't care. Like she shouldn't be in this program either. You know, hearing you talk about that, you know, another big thing we think about or like I suffer from postpartum depression after I had my son. And did they have any services in place at the um, organization you were at for like mental health or like postpartum care for the mothers? I mean, I know that they have certain classes that we needed to go to and we were required to go to, but as far as like postpartum or anything like that, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know any of about any of that. I know that for me, because I've been in survival mode a majority of my life and I have learned how to maneuver things for me, my mindset at that time was I need to do this time and I need to get it out the way and I need to get up out of here. And if there is services that I need, John ain't the one to give it to me. You know, and that kind of was like my mentality behind it. 
just because I would continuously see certain things. And it's like, first of all, they're, they don't want to hear anything about you being a victim. And to them, a weakness to, to you or, you know, you feel in a certain way that might be perceived as that. Now, there were some really great, I won't take away from some of the great caseworkers that they had there because there were caseworkers that actually did care. But when it came to the way that things were written and the rules and the regulations, there was nothing that they could do about those things. I think that a focus was just more so, it wasn't so much like rehabilitation type of thing or like healing type of thing. It was just more so, you know, you have time, go to this class, go to that class, do this, and then you'll be up out of here. And going back to what you said, as far as like them deeming you a good mom or a bad mom, just regardless, it's like, I think that for them, like you said, you got extra food, but it wasn't really out of the area of care. It was more, I don't want a lawsuit, right? And so it's like, I think when you're pregnant in there, they don't look at their baby as, oh, a baby, you know, this beautiful born baby. No, you're an inmate like your mom is an inmate, you know, you're, you're just a number like your mama is the number. You're, you're actually being birthed from a felon or, you know, somebody who has a misdemeanor, somebody who's breaking the law. So it's like, mm. you know, because I, I guarantee you if it had been a different situation, somebody would have been able, you know, especially someone who's a mother. It's like you act like I'm asking you, can I go spend a night at somebody's house because I just had my baby and I need my family. My baby is fighting for his life. I'm in a hospital that you know about, leave somebody with me, whatever, wh- whatever you need to do. But we're not talking about my baby just has a little cough. He can't come home. And mm. you know what I mean? And so it's just like, but at, again, you said, you asked me earlier, what, are the, what was it that really caused you to get the mentality? It was those things. It was those things that caused me to get the mentality, understanding these spaces are not built for me. The spaces are not built for my healing, for my restoration. They're not, they're not even built to protect my children. They're not even willing to make, I mean, everybody knows when kids are born, they need to be very close to their parents, especially their mamas. They need to feel your touch. They need to hear your voice. I believe that it was because I was talking to him and, and rubbing him and saying, come on, honey, breathe. I believe it was because of that that my baby was making it through those nights. And I continuously did that. Can you imagine fighting for your life, whether you're a baby or not, and you doing it by yourself with some random nurses coming in every 30 minutes? You know, so yeah, I understood that these spaces are not built for me to take care of me or anything. And I get it, jail's not supposed to be that. But when do we understand that there's supposed to be some type of shift sometimes? If you want change when they come out, the change has to start within there. And if there's no change within there, then what are we doing? Because really what you could have caused me to do is become numb and become a bitter and a hatred person just towards people in general. You know, every interaction that you have with people, it it really does minister to the person that you're going to become. And when you're in those type of spaces, it causes a person. And we talked about this earlier. There are people who will be in there and they're moving out of survival. Right. So they become that space. They're not healing in that space. They become that space. And if you're telling me that this space is supposed to make me better, so when I come out, I don't come back, then why, why is there nothing to make it better there? I just don't understand. I'm just imagine now I have a one-year-old, and when he gets sick in my own, like just being with him, staying up all night, he also has eczema. He's allergic to everything. So, like, I remember how that feels as well, like wanting to solve your baby's problems and when you can't just wanting to be there just wanting to show up when you were in this 
you you only had like a one year sentence and how long were you in this program for the program i was in there for i think it was about four months four and a half and that, that's what's absurd to me is that it's like why couldn't they just let you go home <laughs> like why like in this in this it makes me think about the bail situation where there's people serving like i when i was on rikers island that's a holding place that's pre-trial detention if they do have there's also for sentences of a year or less but there were girls in there for four years pre-trial like you have not been sentenced you just can't make bail that's crazy and the bail for some people the bail wasn't that much but for others it was and it's reminded me of that like you mean to tell me you had four and a half months left and they put you in this program and made you do the, the rest of the time in this program after you had your baby, after your baby got sick, they still made you do the, the max out the time instead of just sending you home. Yeah. Instead of just sending you home. It's not like you was, you had a baby. It was, you know, it's not like. <laughs> I was only there on a violation. I wasn't there on no, I didn't go to prison because I had created this tremendous crazy crime. I was there because in my third time violation, get a prison sentence, not a jail sentence, but a prison sentence. And so it's like, even when, even just thinking about how I had to do every single last minute of every single day, even as being a mom and my son, they had to, when we got back to the place, they had to isolate us because it's, it's contagious. He got it from another kid that was there, I guess, mm. you know, so it's a contagious thing. So they have to isolate you if you have it. They isolated us all the way to the last minute of the last date of my sentence. They, mm. It wasn't like, let's, you know, let's get y'all out of here or anything like that. It's like when you read these books now or when you watch these documentaries talking about the prison industrial complex and you've lived it, like you even saying like I was there for a probation violation, a parole violation, like, and then still have to serve out the max, even after I had my baby, even after he, he got sick. And it's like he got sick and you wanted to be there every night. So they knew it's not much you was going to be doing. Like, you, you know, you want to be with your child. It's mind blowing. And I just commend your strength and your testimony for sharing that story. Even me, other people that are moms are always just like how hard it is. I remember the first week after having my son, I was so sleep deprived. I, I told my friend, I said, I see why sleep deprivation is the first move when they're torturing somebody. Cause this, you cannot, this is unsustainable. Like how, <laughs> like this feels worse. This just feels like how I felt. I said, I haven't felt like this since when I was locked up, like no sleep. I don't know what's going on. I feel like I've like I been completely uprooted. So you work now at Root and Rebound, which is a reentry services organization in California. And I was wondering if you could share about your journey to getting to that organization and how you, you know, found your calling and your passion. And then also a bit about what your organization does and what you do specifically with Root and Rebound? Of course. I came to Root and Rebound as a client. I wanted to get my record cleaned. I had already been out for quite a few years at that time, maybe five years at that time. And so, and I wanted to get my record clean because I had continued to go for these certain positions because ever since I got home, really before that, even when I was a child, I've always been helping people. I just give my toys away, whatever it looks like. It was just always in me. And so as I got older and I had already been through all these things, I'm like, how do I use what I've gone through to like, you know, help other people not go through that? And it was, it was more so like, a, it was so traumatic for me. Like, and I wanted to figure out how to turn my pain into purpose because just to sit with the pain, it felt so shameful and overwhelming all the time. 
But when I would use my experiences to speak into somebody or encourage somebody or help them with a resource, it just felt so good. It felt natural. And so I started to volunteer at certain places and I started to apply to certain places and I would get the job. But when I would get the job and my background would come back, they would rekin their offer. After having so many no's, which I received so, so many of them, I ended up getting a flyer. My mom sent me this flyer and Root and Rebound had just came. I think it was like their first year moving out here. They were doing like this legal clinic that they that we now do about two or three times a year. So I ended up going to the legal clinic, got all my paperwork in order. At that time, the person who was in my position now, there now I am the women's support and social services manager there. The person who was my in my position at that time, I met with her. She's actually the person that connected me to counseling. And so I actually got in counseling through her. To make a long story short, I wasn't able to get the expungement, but I am going for my CO uh, certificate of rehabilitation at the end of this year. So I'm excited about that. Uh, but because I ended up going to prison, I was no longer able to get an expungement. I guess there was some type of fine print that if you ever go to prison, you can't get the expungement. About a year and a half later, I was looking for work and I called to see if the person who was economic coach at that time could help me because I wanted to be in this kind of field and I did not, I was not going to take no for an answer. So I kept applying to these places that were serving in the community. They said they wanted system impact the people to lead it, but then my background would come back and then the mission would change. Uh, which is something I really love about Rune Rebound because what they say is what they do. And so um, I ended up finding out that this, uh, this, this position was available and I applied for it. And, um, and when I applied for it, I ended up getting it. And, you know, it's so funny because the only question that I had in the interview, they said, um, okay, well, do you have any questions for me? And I said, yeah, what was going on with my background? Cause that's the only question I ever have, you know, you guys already know what's on it. Cause you helped me, you know, did it. And, she, rep- she responded, we don't do background checks. How can we say that we believe in people and their reentry goals and what they're doing if we are doing the same thing that everybody else is doing? We don't do background checks. And I almost fell out my chair. I was like, what? Right. <laughs> Look at God. The what, did you, what did you say? Did you <laughs> in the back? You know? And so, um, man, right then and there, it was like, I don't even, even if I don't get it, just the fact, like, you guys are just like, you know, I'm a volunteer. I'm going to do something here. And so, yeah, um, Fast forward, the reason I I really, I actually was really praying. I was very intentional about what I was praying for. I wanted a position that, and I I didn't pray for this specific job. I just prayed. I said, you know, Lord, I want a position where I can be my authentic self, where I can take all the things that I've been through and I can utilize it to empower and uplift and encourage those who are going through it and help them to get on the other side to become the person they're supposed to be. And I just, I I broke down everything. This is what I, I need to get paid so that way, you know, I can take care of my kids, but I still need it to be flexible so I can be a mom at the same time. And I just went, I went in and he just exceeded my expectation when I got this job. I got the job. And now what I do is I serve formerly incarcerated system impacted women and their children and their family. And so where they look like housing, therapy, uh, peer-to-peer support, we help with employment, we help with record cleaning, licensing, certificate of rehabilitation we help with the the information with that we educate people on their rights and not only people but the community different companies we advocate we focus on a lot of policy reform work and i mean there's just so much that room rebound does and we're always growing at the same time and what i really love is that it's it's extremely valuable to us that we pull from the experience of those who have been system impacted one of the things we just did is we had some two system impacted women help us with a hiring process 
or you know when we go to change policy we don't just say well this is what they need we go and say well what do y'all think what, what, what do we need here what do we what do y'all think you know it's always you know um coming from the perspective of those who are I impacted by mass incarceration yeah that's that's what i'm doing I'm, I'm just continuously walking alongside our women and whatever that looks like whatever resource i need to bring and like I said earlier, it takes a village. So connecting with the community, if we don't have it, I know they have it and vice versa. And we just remain connected and do what we have to do to get our sisters and our brothers to the other side of, you know, this nonsense. I was in my mind saying preach. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I was, one of the things I love is that your email signature ends with, it takes a village and, I mean, I love that for so many reasons because my mother used to always say that um, it takes a village, it takes a village. And I realized, like, when we say it takes a village, not only do we mean for children, we also mean for mothers and parents because, like, I just imagine if, we're, if we were really living in more of a communal space. I live in New York, so it's not as communal as I would imagine the sub, like other places are to be. But, you know, an auntie coming over to, like, take your kid, and yes, the auntie is fun, but what she's really doing is giving you a break. Like, <laughs> you know, so seeing that in your email signature and thinking about my mother, but also thinking about this digital, digital world that we're in and Zoom and the pandemic, I'm like, yes, like, I love that reminder that it takes a village. Like, I also see it as, like, please, like, be patient with me. Like, <laughs> like you know, like... We're all we're all more connected than you think. Like is we're all we're all going through this. Like we're all part of the village. So I, I always like seeing um, your email signature like that. Or sometimes I see it in the preview of my email, and I'm like, I love that. Um, so you know, you you mentioned working. So you're the women's support and reentry manager, right? Social services manager. Yeah. So there we go. So um, I have two questions. So in this, you know, you've been able to work with a lot of women and working with Root and Rebound, which sounds like an amazing organization. What are the resources that you that you think women need? Like what's missing from, you know, from working with all of these women and their families? Like what's not there? What's missing the mark, whether that's like large institutional things, communities or like, you know, whatever we may be seeing on TV when we think about mass incarceration and reentry? What's not there? What do formerly incarcerated women need? Whether, again, whether it's financial support or whatever, what don't we know? What insight do you have? From my perspective, when I say that it takes a village, I mean, it, it takes a village to, in, in general, as far as like, in order for me to become the woman that I am now, because if you had met me, girl, about six, seven years ago, you'd been like, oh, no, you can't come on this podcast. <laughs> So, but in order for me to be where I am now and like move into where I'm going, it took a village for me to do that. So it took for me to go to therapy and counseling. It took for people to hold me accountable. It took for people to believe in me. It took for me to believe in myself. And it took for me to be in spaces that I wouldn't normally be in. And in that village of different collective things, you know, support, I started to become and heal and and do the things that i needed to do to now change the perspective for my generation behind me which is the most important thing i have always said this since i've started this job and i will continue to say it i think the thing at the forefront is healing uh, i can get you a, i can help you get a, an apartment i can help you get transitional housing i can help you get employment and all those things but if you have the same mental that you had when you went through all that trauma you're going to be in that house depressed you, your kids will be depressed. They're not learning anything from you. They don't know how to deal with things in a healthy mindset. 
And I think that that's the number one thing that everybody puts on the back burner. We put mental health on the back burner. We put um, self-care on the back burner. And we say, no, what needs to happen is you need to build the outside of you and then you build the inside of you. And that's not how it works. How many of us know people who have a lot of money, but they're super depressed and they're probably on some type of addiction, you know, have some type of addiction. And so I think that's the main thing and that we're always speaking to our women about. We have our weekly group meetings that we speak where our women come in, they get empowered, they cry, you know, they, they go through whatever they're going through and they have a support system to do that. And what that does is it sets them up for therapy or counseling because how, how many of us know in our culture, that's not something that is highlighted, like it's frowned upon, like, oh, you must go because you're crazy or you must not want to, you know, go because of this or because of that. And that's not the case. The case is we're not learning healing, so we're not teaching healing. So to go back to your question, I think, number one, we need to really, really understand that I've been through so much and I need help. And once you can tell yourself that I need help, then you go and seek that help. And it's not going to feel normal to you at first because you have to go out your comfort zone. That help, to be honest, it didn't always come to me. I mean, there were times where God would say, I know she ain't going to go, so let me toss this person to her, you know, give a little nudge. But for the most part, I had to go find my church family. For the most part, I had to put myself in certain spaces where I had to say I needed help. And when I opened my mouth and I said that, the help came. And a lot of the women that I work with who are system impacted and they're doing great things have all said the same thing. This walk is not going to be easy. But if you position yourself in these communities, then you'll, you'll get the help that you need. We had spoke about this previous, like when people think of reentry, I think the first line of thought is, okay, get them a job. <laughs> get a job, get a house, like keep keep this person out of trouble because, you know, idle time is, we, you know, that, that thought. But just to, to deal with the trauma of being arrested and even before then, because the trauma does not, rarely does it start in jail. That right. just is like another layer. So I think um, trauma-informed healthcare services, mental healthcare services is huge. It's so important. And I think I mean, that goes into a whole nother conversation about this country in general and the, the lack of mental health, affordable mental health services, even for people that aren't formally incarcerated. So I definitely agree. And I think that, again, even the idea of it being solely for women and families, like the thought, oh, you know, only women and family need therapy. And it's like, no, like just formerly incarcerated people in general, like that's something everybody needs. So, you know, do you think that that messaging is, is prominent in California or in, in Fresno and city that you're in? Like, do you think that there's growing resources available for some of these services or do you think it's still lacking? I think that it's going to take for people like me who do see that it is an important subject and people like you and people for us to elevate those type of conversations, because to be honest with you, no, it's always the last thing. It's always the last thing. And I think it's the last thing because we're not aware. I think, First of all, we don't believe that healing exists, right? So we've been living in trauma our whole lives. We haven't really had a taste of joy and a real taste of like peace and a real taste of like knowing who we are in our worth for so long that we just feel like that's reality. And you see all these people pretending to be happy and you know that their real life is not that because there's some of them are family members. Some of them are this, some of them are that. So I think that healing, people don't meet healing. So it's because they don't continuously need it, they don't know that it's, it's truly there and they don't, they don't see it as something that's obtainable. And I think that the other part of that is that we're so good at performing and pretending that we, we get so stuck in that space that whenever something happens, like, you know, we 
fall into depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts, we'll charge it to something else. Oh, it has nothing to do with the fact that when I was 10, I got molested. You know, it does. Even when you look at statistics, a lot of the times people mentally stay there. So I really, it frustrates me when people say, oh, you're grown now. You need to get over it. No, honey, I'll get over it if I go to counseling. Yes, I'll get over it if I can learn how to love myself and and what that looks like. Yes, I'll get over it if I have a relationship with the person who created me, whoever, whatever your belief is, but that's mine. But it's like the conversations need to be elevated and we need to be honest about what's really going on. And the issue, I think that with um, when it comes to system impacted and formerly incarcerated, I understand wanting to serve them and getting them their immediate needs because I understand like how can I focus on healing if I don't have a place to stay or you know whatever. I understand that, but we have to put that as a package deal is what I'm saying. We have to make it a package deal. Yes, you need a job and you need this, but you also need this. And the biggest reason that I say this is that can we really help? those who are incarcerated and really put a stop to this if we're not worried about the next generation. And I can only worry about my next generation if I start with the head of the household. If I can help you get your healing and and understand your trauma and be able to communicate the right way and to discern things the right way, then guess what you do? You naturally teach your kids to do the same thing. My kids have so much of me, of who I am today, because I naturally teach them to do that because I am the example. So I'll naturally feed into them and speak into them and encourage them, or I'll break down a situation and communicate with, before they have a consequence. But I, I didn't used to be like that. Before, I would just yell because that's what I was taught. That's how I would get disciplined. I would be yelled at. Or I would just, you know, shut down or there was other things. But when I learned something new, I naturally taught it. So now my generation after me, they're not going to be exposed to the same things that I was exposed to. And the generational thing changes. And I think When we talk about big picture, that's the big picture we should be talking about. If I just got your mama a job, but she still deals with all the same things she was dealing with before, did I really help her? Did I really help her? You know what I mean? And that's my thing. I'm not saying that the work that we we do is not good. It's absolutely good. But healing has to definitely be the core of that. 100%. 100%. I wish the, the people listening to the podcast could see my face, could see my reactions on certain things. But I, I think everybody needs, a, a, especially if you're dealing with reentry or system impact or formerly incarcerated, you need to have a trauma-informed lens. Like you need to go through the trainings and the need to have, uh, you know, a therapist or a social worker on staff or just have frequent, frequent trainings for this because, you could have all the good intentions in the world to want to help, but if you don't have the lens and the understanding of the roots of things, and you're just so focused on like the fruit of the tree, mm-hmm. the, the infection starts at the roots. You know, if there's an issue with something deeper and you don't see it, it, it you're so worried about, okay, I, I can't get this one apple. I can't get this one thing. Maybe we should look deeper into that. I love that. I love how you broke that down. So one thing I wanted to, you know, we, we live in the this Zoom pandemic world. And I think, you know, as you were speaking, I was also thinking like, wow, you know, being system impacted, being a mother, being a black woman, and then imagine in the Zoom world, like how have your services transitioned in the, with things being virtual? Like what has that transition been like from your observation with the system impacted women and families you've worked with? Like what are some of the challenges they're facing? Because again, like, 
everybody has had to change, whether it's like Zoom school or now you're like working from home and taking care of your child. But I don't think everyone's thinking about what does that even mean for someone who's formerly incarcerated, just came home, about to come home or whatever. Like, you know, we're, we're forgetting there's a whole prison world out there, incarcerated and impacted people that are also going through the pandemic. Right. Um, so what have you observed has been uh, some of the difficulties or, or challenges and some or maybe some positives or thing, ways that y'all have overcome any of these challenges? I think when the pandemic first hit, it was extremely hard, obviously, like you said, on everybody. I mean, it was hard on me. Not only did I, was I starting, because at that time, I had only been with Root and Rebound about four months, three months. And so I'm starting a new position. And then also, I, my kids are now doing homeschool. So I'm, I'm a teacher too, which I'm not a good teacher. I want to be clear about that. I'm not, like, that's not my role. Like, <laughs> shout out to them. Like, I can't wait to send y'all back these kids, you know, all, all that good stuff. But it was very hard in the beginning, especially for our clients, because we were very much so hands-on and direct contact. And so having to go from a place of that and then also losing work. So there's quite a few of them that lost work. As far as or our organization goes, I have to say that I'm extremely proud of the way that they handled it. If anything, we actually excelled during the pandemic. They did so many more webinars, so many more forums. We had a client fund where we were giving out gift cards to people who needed immediate needs. I mean, we fit so many families. I think it was somewhere near eight or 900 families during that time. They even had an employee fund just in case like we had hardships and something that we needed during that time. And it was just like their shift they did. And when I say there, it's because these are all decisions that are made from our, you know, our, our higher team up. Um, and so they, their shift in the way that they handled the pandemic as far as serving not only our uh, clients, but also the employees with self-care days and making sure that we had what we needed and things like that. I think we did a really good job. With our clients, what I've seen was, again, the mental health. Now, it's one thing when I can move around and leave my house and go over here and do over there. I don't got to deal with any of that. You know, it's, it's like you said, it's not until I'm isolated and then I have to really start to deal with the true trauma what's going on. So in the beginning, we were having or I was having a lot of conversations with our clients that were very in-depth and, and overwhelming. And, you know, it, it was just it was a lot of old things were surfacing, resurfacing up, you know, a lot of old trauma and them not having their kids during that time, have a couple of clients who weren't able to visit with their children during that time because, you know, people were still trying to figure out what do visits look like right now? Or, you know, how do I know if you have COVID and if you still need to be cleared? And so there are some parents who were in the midst of reunification with their children and they could not see their children for a long period of time because they were trying to figure out what visiting looked like during that time. So yeah, they would use Zoom but, you know, for kids, that's not enough. They want to see their mama. They don't understand COVID, you know. And so, um, yeah, it was, a, it was an extremely hard year, especially in the beginning, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, on everybody, um, especially on our clients. Um, but I would say that I think that it also kind of challenged everybody as well to understand mental health and understand themselves and understand, you know, take certain things and be grateful for those things as well. And, and then there were parts that challenged us to where either we were going to fold or we were going to press. And so I'm thankful to say that all the clients that I know, a majority of them that I know, and also a lot of our, my coworkers, we just learned how to press in a whole different type of storm, you know? So yeah, but there, it, it was extremely hard in the beginning. And that's great that your organization was able to adapt and address so many families like that's that's huge 
I couldn't imagine that, like, being incarcerated and then coming home and then have, being told, like, you know, you still got to wait 14 days in order to see your kid. And then, like, I mean, so many people lost jobs who aren't formerly incarcerated. So, like, trying to find work and then find housing and then everything has to be, like, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, too, like, every nobody knew what what was happening like grocery stores nobody had toilet paper and everything was getting sold out so that on top of trying to it's like you return home you thinking you returning to normal and now you're returning to what could someone could seem like a zombie movie like what the hell is going on in the world so it's amazing that there's programs like yours that exist that's like look we also are going through stuff too like you're not alone but what we can do is we can still try to help and, and figure out, you know, you're you're not just being thrown to the wolves. Like we may not necessarily have a streamlined system yet, but we have enough to to still we still want you to know that you're supported. And I think I mean this is this is why community support and buy in matters. I have two questions that I wanna ask and then we'll wrap up. So the first question it's a bit about this this thought of like finances versus mental health care and I think, you know, as mothers, it is just so expensive to to be a mom, like on top of bills, like housing, food, um, and just like living things. Then you have like daycare or, if, you know, if your baby's young, you have childcare, um, other school fees and things like that, gas, whatever you need in order to be a parent, um, in order to survive. And then, but then thinking about how so much, of what people go through is is trauma and, and PTSD. How do you balance or talk to some of your clients about this battle of like financial like stability versus mental health care, especially when they're parents? And it's so difficult to choose between the two, and it can sometimes even seem difficult to do both at the same time. So. What are some ways that you encourage or try to alleviate this issue where it kind of seems like money or happiness or like money and mental health? One of the ways that we do that as an organization is that um, we bring in, you know, experts in those areas. So actually speaking about financial wellness, this is actually our financial wellness month. So in our group sessions, we have somebody coming in every Friday. Um, And this week, we actually have somebody talking about mental health and financial wellness and how they connect. And then we have Bank of America coming in the next couple of weeks and showing us about credit repair and then also home ownership. So I think where it starts is, again, educating, right? So of course, we educate on know your rights and things like that, but also educating on financial wellness and what it looks like to be financially well and what's your budget specifically. And I think that just being honest with them, you know, you got to work smarter, not harder. You got to focus on you. And one of my favorite scriptures is actually right here. And it says, it's Proverbs 14, one, it says a wise woman builds her house, but a foolish one tears it down with her own hands. I have underlined her house. And the reason I have it underlined is because sometimes it's sometimes it's not even that we don't make enough money. It's that we're doing the wrong things with our money because I'm looking at your house and your house looks like this. So maybe if I can make my house look like that, but I don't got the income you got. Or maybe I got more, it's just that you're in debt because you chose to, you know, look good instead of be good. And so I always tell our women, it's important, you know, just breaking it down and making it as simple as possible. Because sometimes you talk about financial wellness, it could be a whole nother language, right? Like, 
I mean, there's some people who are financial experts and I'm like, what is he? Let me write that down. Let me Google that. What you, what are you talking about? You know, like, and so it's like just making it as simple as possible. And so we have a, a couple of forms, budgeting forms, just a simple form. You write down all what you have, you write down what, what goes, you don't. And we always tell them, uh, one thing I do always tell them too: don't pay everything with one check, split it between the two. So you always look, you know, you can, you feel that you have money going in both from both ways. Right. And so we try to simplify it as much as possible, because, again, when we go to mental health, one thing with mental health is that when you have too much going on, even a, a pad of paper full of stuff can feel overwhelming if your mental is not in order. Right. And, and so it's like just first of all, what's the goal? OK, so, for example, if the goal is to purchase the house, well, do I do I got some credit card debt? Well, I do. So if I want to purchase by next year at this time, then I would have to pay this much down by this time. And so what does it look like coming out? And, the, and I show them I also have a vision board on the other side. And we've done this with our clients where we have vision boards. If you can visually see it, you can visually do it. On my vision board, it has how much needs to be paid. It has a little check mark. Once I got done with that, I checked it. That right there made me feel like I need to keep going. So I think that. It's just simplifying it as much as possible because, again, you need to know your crowd. These are not college students, you know, or some of them are. Let me not say that. And some of them are college graduates. But I'm saying, what are, what is their, what, how do they learn? How do they receive? And then you teach them from that level of what that looks like and make it extremely simple as possible. And then also understanding that um, when it comes to, when it comes to your spending habits, like, what does that look like? Do you spend when you're angry? Do you spend when you're upset? Can you go on a walk instead? Can you work out instead? Can you go for a coffee? A $5 coffee is better than you spending $100 at the mall. You know, so like just giving them different type of options when it comes to the, while, why they might be spending out of mood swings or spending out of, you know, just unhealthy mindsets that hit because I definitely was like yeah that that can be me sometimes and most people think like oh when I get angry I don't spend money um but you may not it's just so subconscious you may not even realize like that you're doing it but I like what you said earlier about like y'all are combining it like it's financial literacy month but it's not like okay we're only talking about money and budget it's like financial wellness we're talking about budgeting but also the importance of making mental health a priority in your budget like I think the approach you just said is is precisely what we need. Like, yes, we need to be able to talk about financial wellness or maybe skills or buying a home, but we also need to talk about the like there's including the mental health oh like as always part of the conversation and not separate is how we like first of all end the stigma, but make sure that is continuously being um, at the forefront when we talk about healing, but also re-entry and how to incorporate just mental health wellness into every aspect of your life. So that sounds really, really dope. And I'm excited. I, I'm, I know it's going to be good. And I'm glad that y'all are able to get like Bank of America and any other sponsors I have to, to speak on that. I think that that's huge. And to be able to have an organization take that approach is helpful because when you come home, it, it can be difficult to find it's just like, where do I start? <laughs> like, where, where is square one? Like, my mom also gave me a flyer for a, a program. It was a, it's a public speaking program for formerly incarcerated individuals. So I was laughing as you were speaking. And when you were saying this, I'm like, wow, like, my mom, it was the same thing. I also found the public speaking program, like, five years after I was locked up. So, but it was late, but I was like, it still felt much like a home space. It still felt like, wow, I still need this. Like, I, 
I graduated college. I had been a teacher. I felt like I was so um, distanced from, from being system impacted. But when I was in that space, it felt, it was like a healing circle being around everybody in the program was formerly incarcerated. So we were all talking, share our stories. And I was like, wow, I can't believe that. Like seven years later, I'm, you know, feeling like I'm finally feeling like relief. I feel seen. Like I, I feel like I have people I can relate to. Like we, you know, we talk about commissary or we talking, we making jokes and or talking about coming home or even talking about our childhoods as well and like how we even got into jail and all of that. So I, I've definitely resonated with that part of the story. And that just goes to show you that it's never too late to heal and it's never too late to get into a reentry service or a program. I, I said I had two questions, but I think that that last one was a perfect one to end on. I think we covered everything that I wanted to discuss. If there's anything you want to, any parting words you have, anything you want to uplift, uh, please feel free to do so. No, I think we did a really good job at, you know, the both of us. You dropped some jewels as well. So I think we did a really good job at highlighting what was important. And just um, for those who are listening to this, who are system impacted, formerly incarcerated, I think the biggest thing that I would like to say that we may not have talked on is if there is an environment that you want to be in and you feel like because you're formerly incarcerated, you can't do that. I just want to tell you that that is a lie, you know, because somebody on this call just got accepted into law school. Okay, get it, girl. You better get it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and, you know, I'm working in a position that actually required a master's and I don't have a master's. And from my understanding, my site director even said that when I applied because of the way that I applied and what I said in my um, application, they decided that they maybe they were going about this wrong. Maybe they needed to put somebody different in this position. And so I say all that to say is I see a lot of people who are system impacted, who because of what they've been through, they carry a lot of shame and they really want to go into some phenomenal things. They want to be entrepreneurs. They want to go open a nonprofit. They want to go do these amazing things. But because they think they can't because of, you know, being system impacted or the mental health is in the way, they just put their head down and they take whatever. Don't take whatever. Be one of these world changers. Come out here and shift the perspective. Get your healing so you can be a part of this fight. And if you need a village, we always here to help. I hope they can hear me snapping. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And thank you. Everything. Yes. Like I, we are also part of the village. I will make sure that both of our information is linked when we share the podcast on the CTR website. Please. What you said about shame is so true because I have carried, I carry the shame of being arrested for probably until maybe three years ago. I mean, mine was in the newspaper, so I had always felt like everybody knew who I was and that I had to prove every, all these people wrong. And I was so scared to talk about it. But then it, when you Googled my name, it just popped up. And I realized, like, I wanted to take on... I wasn't afraid. I wasn't ashamed. And I, I too, I was told no from things. I, even in college, like, I couldn't do certain programs. And I had to always have write these essays explaining the situation. I had to always prove to them, like... I'm not a threat to you anymore as if me just going to college wasn't enough or it's like I was 17 you know like why do I have to still keep proving <laughs> that I'm a decent human being so um, what you said about carrying shame is phenomenal and that it, it's so true do not let the shame hold you back and stop you from thinking you, you can't achieve a greatness or thinking that you need extra qualifications because you don't um, there's so many programs now that want 
to hear the voices of formerly incarcerated and system impacted individuals. So if anything, if you got anything from today, it's please share your stories um, and shoot your shots. Please don't be afraid to do so. And um, remember your voice and perspective is more than needed. It's, it's valued and it's what's going to shape and change the world when we think about prison reform, abolishing prison, and more importantly, just reentry services and how we can continue to rebuild the, these villages. Yes, amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. Just a reminder to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you want to find out more about our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. That's all until next time on The Activist Files. Thank you.